For one week this fall, junior Julia Bouillon trekked around campus with a hiking pack and tote bags full of sex toys and condoms. And people were looking at me like, why does this girl have a hiking backpack and like three tote bags of condoms? And I'm like, you know, this is, this is what we do. <laughs> Last week was Sex Week at Harvard, a week-long series of events encouraging students to better explore sex, sexuality, and body. This week on News Talk, in our first guest from Outside the Crimson featured on the show, the president of Sex Week joins us to tell us how it all came together. From Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. I'm Frank Joe. My name is Julia R. Bouillon, and I am the president of Sex Week. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining us. So I wonder if you could start by setting the scene for us. What is Sex Week in the first place? Yeah, great question. I, I do get this question a lot. So Harvard Sex Week is a week dedicated to programming around love, sex, sexuality, sexual health, relationships, body, and more. And basically, we just have this week dedicated to having four or five events a day. We bring in expert speakers. We hold student discussions, panels, games, and just help empower the student body to understand their bodies and understand relationships and love and Mm. all the things I listed before. But yeah, it's just the most wonderful week of the year. So for a student at Harvard who is hearing about Sex Week for the first time, what would they have seen on campus last week, by the way, of programming related to Sex Week? Yeah, absolutely. So we try to have an event, at least one event for every individual on campus. You know, we started off last week with a very basic sex ed because a lot of individuals, myself included, did not get a proper sex ed in high school. So that's a basic sex ed 101. We also have a range of events for people who may be more experienced or looking to try more like new exciting things in the bedroom. We had Role Playing 101 last week, for example, and BDSM and Kink. That was a big hit for sure. Um, and then we also have events intended really to help people understand their bodies, which I will say is every event, but one specifically geared towards that. So there's one that was called... Uh, real bodies as in like Instagram real bodies versus real bodies and that deconstructed body myths and social media I thought that was just an absolutely powerful event we also had caring for your coochie which was you know healthy bubble vaginal practices so those are geared towards understanding one's body and also in terms of empowerment there was a lot about understanding how to navigate this campus, especially there was one about navigating sexual readiness. It was how, how to know how far to go. One, one of my team members led that. They were phenomenal. And that was helping, you know, set boundaries for oneself. There was another one about unraveling the intricacies of collegiate sexual misconduct. And that was also an incredible event in allowing attendees to put a name to, you know, various types of sexual misconduct that happened on campus that they might have not known about before. So yeah, we, we pretty much have it all. I, I There's so many. We had 22 events. That was, I believe, the record out of all the sex weeks we've had at Harvard so far. Yeah, for sure. So how have students responded then to the sex week programming? Have you received feedback from attendees? Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so happy. And, you know, I've just heard just glowing glowing feedback and people are really excited and even um like on social media like side chat I'm not sure if you're familiar it's one of like 
like a social media that a lot of people on Harvard's campus use. And there was a whole post dedicated to like thanking Sex Week organizers. And they were like, I'm so glad like you provide the space for us. And I don't know, I, I totally wars my heart and I'm like, <laughs> like gushing right now, but I, I'm super happy that I feel, I feel we really did touch people's lives. And I'm glad that we were able to provide this space. One thing that we immediately think about in terms of being college students thinking about Sex Week on a college campus is faculty, administrators, all the adults who are around us and in our (laughs) lives. Curious if you've received feedback from faculty or gotten a sense of what the adults on campus are thinking about this all. Yeah, they, well, all the adults I've talked to, they actually love it, which I was super happy about. JR, he's like the SoCo guy. He's in charge of like approving all the events. And (laughs) it was so funny when I was like booking rooms and asking for event approval, I would be sending like backdoor basics, anal 101, (laughs) BDSM and kink. And I was like, oh, I really hope he approves this and he approved everything and when I met with him in person he's like you know what I'm so glad you guys are doing this I'm not sure if I will pull up but I am glad you guys are doing this and I just thought that was phenomenal and the share team uh, we've also met with the title nine office and it's just been phenomenal to talk with all these administrators who are also you know very dedicated to providing the safe space for students on campus and throughout all these conversations I've just realized how many resources there are on campus. And I'm really glad that we've had these conversations with these administrators because they've actually helped us think about our events in a different way. You know, for instance, Sexy Soiree, which happened last Saturday, previously it used to be called Fuckfest. You know, talking with the shared team, we realized, you know, it doesn't create much of a consent-based space necessarily with the name. People might come in not really understanding what that means to enter that sort of space. So by changing it to Sexy Soiree, and that's the conversation we had with the SHARE team and the Women's Center and Title IX, we, you know, transformed the the purpose of the party to be more empowering. It's about yourself. And we made, we changed the dress code. It used to be a lingerie party. We changed it to wear whatever makes you feel sexy. And that could be anything. That could be sweats. You know, I, I feel sexy all the time. I could show up. However, and I think by doing that, we we just transformed the space into something much more comfortable and safe and inclusive and inviting for people. And these are all conversations that happened with administrators. You know, Harvard Sex Week would not be the same without them. They've truly transformed it this year for us. So amidst all of this programming on campus, in terms of conversations with administrators, different offices on campus, the 22 events that you ran last week, is you and your team for Sex Week. I'm curious if you could tell us what it's like to be president of Sex Week and watching all of that programming come together. Yeah, absolutely. I knew I could not do Sex Week without a team. This all started when I started emailing companies for donations right before school started. Is this all donation-based, the entire process? Yes, it's all the sex toys, sex supplies. We have so many lovely, wonderful sponsors. And we actually got over $100,000 of donations this year, which I think is record-breaking for us, uh, just in terms of sex supplies like lubes and condoms and also sex toys, which are made for all types of genitals and all types of bodies. but yeah, so I started emailing, you know, copy and pasting <laughs> the little emails to, I think we, I reached out to like 250 different companies. And I was like, oh, okay, that's done. Now we can start forming the team. And I was like, I keep saying we. I, I like to call myself a team of one at that time. <laughs> um, 
I was like, how can I get people? I was like, okay, the activities fair. So I donned the, the vulva costume. I was manning the, the sex week booth on my own in the little vagina costume. And I was like, come on board. You know, like the little pun, come on board. <laughs> and I was doing my little spiel to everyone and, you know, got a lot of weird glances and things, but it was all worth it. We currently have a team of 13 active board members and they are phenomenal. This, these are the board meetings I look forward to. You know how a lot of times board meetings you're like, oh, I got to get through this. No, these are the ones I'm like excited for. And we're like a giant friend group at this point. And then that past week was a lot of running around. I had a hiking backpack from when I went hiking two weeks ago. And I used that to carry sex toys around campus. And people were looking at me like, why does this girl have a hiking backpack and like three tote bags of condoms? And I'm like, you know, this is, this is what we do. <laughs> um, but yeah. On to sex weekend next semester and more exciting things, I'm sure. So you mentioned, right, that there are upcoming events, sex weekend next semester to look forward to. But at the end of this process now, at least for sex week this fall, how are you feeling? And what do you think is lingering on campus by way of the conversations and ideas that students are having and talking about? I have a lot of complex emotions around this because... I will say I've just heard amazing things from my peers and also people that I didn't know before who just came up to me and was like, thank you. Thank you so much for organizing this. And, you know, as I said before, giving us this space. And I've had friends come up to me and start asking me questions about like, Julia, you know, I'm facing this in my life. How, can you give me some advice? And is there someone I can talk to on campus? And now... I feel equipped with this information to share if I don't know it personally to refer them to resources. And I think a lot of it is focused on the per person, the individual. Sexy, we we might think of as two or more people, but I really do think it leaves the individual feeling empowered after sex week, whether it's in love or in sex or in any other thing. And I'm very glad that this happened. Mm. You mentioned that you joined the Sex Week team last spring for the first time. Now you're its president, having just pulled it off for this fall. I'm curious if in throughout that journey of your time and involvement on the team, learning about the resources that we have on campus, distributing that knowledge and information to your peers, if your personal views on sex, empowerment, and body have changed in the wake of all of this, um, and, and how you think about it now. Absolutely. Yes. I think I've always been a very sex positive person. But I think I remember first starting out, I was a little nervous about, you know, donning the vulva costume and chasing down people and saying, sex week is coming. Sex week is coming. <laughs> Are you coming? <laughs> but <laughs> I've really... I don't know. I, I think it's a big part of who I am now. And, you know, now I have no trouble donning that vulva costume, no trouble at all chasing after people and sending 50 million emails to the Quincy mailing list <laughs> about free condoms in the D hall <laughs> and this event today. Um, I feel very um, unabashedly me. I'm curious if there are any things about Tex Week, what you do, how it went, that you'd like the rest of campus to know that we haven't yet talked about. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I am a very sex positive person, 
But I would like to say that I understand that not everyone is there yet or will be. And that is completely okay. And everyone has their own boundaries with things. And everyone comes with their own experiences and their own stories. And I would like to say that we at Sex Week understand that. And we have also carved out space for anyone who is uncomfortable perhaps with attending events in person. We have recorded most of our lectures uh, that were led by the expert speakers. For those who were uncomfortable with coming in person, we wanted to help people protect their anonymity while still being able to become empowered with this information and knowledge. So I do want to say that those resources are out there on our, pay- our website, sexweekatharvard.org. Um, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to us. You know, we, we want these events and this knowledge to be as accessible as possible for everyone. So one thing that might come up, you know, that I'm sure my parents are currently asking if they're listening to this is how have your family members and your parents responded to your involvement in Sex Week? And whether there are any stories from that. Absolutely. When I was first interested in Sex Week, I, I told my parents about it and they said, absolutely not. <laughs> I I am a Bengali Muslim girl and I grew up in, you know, our culture tends to be a little bit more on the conservative side. And so my parents, understandably, you know, having grown up in that culture, they're like, no, we don't want you to do that. So naturally, I went ahead and did it. <laughs> and then when I became president this semester, I was like, yeah, I should probably break it to them. <laughs> I should probably tell them. So I, I told them. And you know what? My dad and my mom, well, my mom t- took some, some time to warm up to it. But my dad actually was like, wait, that's actually great. You're, uh, I think I framed it from the perspective of like sexual health you know I I am pre-med and then he was like wow that's great you're you're making the world a better place I'm like yeah and then my mom also warmed up to it but we've definitely had some uh funny experiences with that so uh last week so we had sexy soiree and I was like okay we need some amazing decorations for this so naturally I went on Amazon ordered a giant inflatable penis and (laughs) giant inflatable boobs among other things those are probably the highlights and then my dad sends me a text we do have a shared Amazon account (laughs) I would like to say he he says what are you ordering on Amazon it it all looks weird to me (laughs) I was like oh don't worry it's for sex week and he just sent me an emoji that was like the little quizzical confused face <laughs> but you know Wait, is that the one with like the glasses on over one of the eyes exactly it's, it's exactly that it's exactly that um but they're very supportive um and my my friends do tend to be shocked when i like show them like the little text messages between us and they're like your parents know you ordered a giant inflatable penis balloon from amazon i'm like yep they put up with me <laughs> um and I'm, I'm really grateful that that my family is supportive of that especially given the background they come from and them being open-minded to this and warming up to me doing these things it's been i'm, I'm very grateful to say the least Thank you so much, Julia, for joining us to talk about Sex Week and your personal experiences with it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Next, Harvard has an agreement with the cities of Boston and Cambridge called Payment in Lieu of Taxes, or PILOT. One of our reporters joins us now to talk through why Harvard may not be paying enough. 
My name is Jack R. Trapanik, and I cover government relations on the Metro team for the Harvard Crimson. Thank you so much, Jack, for joining us. So we're here to talk about payments that Harvard should be making to the cities of Boston and Cambridge. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about the program that says Harvard should be making these payments and just what it says Harvard needs to do. Yeah, so that's actually a good way to start. So um, formally, Harvard is a nonprofit institution because it's educational in purpose. And so the way cities work, the way they fund their budget, which is pretty considerable, is they often rely on property taxes. So Boston is like this, New York is like this, some other cities rely on other things like income tax. But for Boston, property taxes are what account for like 70% of the city's budget. This is actually kind of a problem for Boston because it's very known for having a lot of very prominent nonprofit institutions. So that includes hospitals like MGH, Brigham and Women's. Those are huge institutions that have a lot of land in the city. We also have educational institutions and museums. So all those things under state law don't have to pay property taxes because they're nonprofits, and Harvard's obviously included. So actually, when we talk about Harvard's land in this context, we're just talking about what Harvard owns in Boston. So that's primarily the Longwood campuses, which is for the med school, school public health, dental school, and then the biz school in Alston and the expanding enterprise research campus and all that. So in all that land, they don't have to pay taxes. That's a problem for the city because that deprives them of really critical revenue. And as Harvard expands and buys up more land, the city actually loses land that they make money on. So what the city has is called a payment and of taxes system. It requests that institutions that are big and have a lot of land and have a lot of money do their fair share to help out the city. Because essentially they're saying, you use our land and you benefit from a lot of our services, like police, firefighting, snow removal, basic services the city provides that everyone is going to benefit from, even if you don't pay taxes. So they pay 25% of what they would pay in property taxes, because that is the estimate for how much it takes to fund the services that they benefit from. So under this agreement, Harvard theoretically has to pay a certain sum each year. Has it been doing that? Or how much has it been paying relative to what it's agreed to? Right. So the way the system is set up is that annually, Boston has an evaluation of how much Harvard's land is is worth. And they request 25% of that amount like we talked about. And so Harvard typically pays 78, 79% of that. If you break it down, 50% of what the city requests can actually be in community benefits, quote unquote, or deductible is what the city calls it. So those are things that nonprofit institutions do as specifically a benefit to the community. It's not meant to serve their own profit. It's not meant to serve, for example, Harvard students. It's just meant to help the community around them. And it can be anything from like, for example, the Arnold Arboretum that Harvard has. They have the Ed Portal in Alston that has a ton of programs that are educational or help with English language learners. All these things are considered community benefits. And Harvard always maxes that out. They don't pay usually the full amount of the cash request. Now, many people speculate, including Rob McCarran, who we talked to this spring, and he's the president of the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities in Massachusetts, which represents universities like Harvard in situations where they're dealing with governments at times. And he's essentially said, the university believes that what they provide to the community is not fully represented because the deductible caps at 50%. So if, if, you know, if that cap amounts to $3 million, they might say, well, actually, we provide $4 million in community benefits. And because of that, we're not going to pay the full cash amount because we are, we're already paying that amount in community benefits. But this is pretty contentious. And so there's a lot of criticism from residents who just feel like they should pay the full amount because they have a lot of money and they're, they're in the city and they should be just doing their part to, to help out the city. And other people have some criticisms about the way that community benefits are determined. And that's the springboard now for some calls for re-examining the program and seeing you know, how's it doing? How can it be improved? And are we engaging residents enough in determining how this is playing out? 
So this program has been around for a long time, for more than a decade. I'm curious if you could tell us if this is a recent trend or if Harvard's always not paid the full cash sum. Yeah, so actually it's the 12th year in a row that they have not paid the full sum. And so we kind of run an annual article at this point, announcing this kind of bit almost of non-news at this point that they continue not to pay the full amount. I think they've always had this reasoning essentially, right? There's always been this 50% cap on community benefits deductible, so... Moving forward then, does it look like Harvard's shown any indication of changing its behavior when it comes to paying the amount of the cash sum that it does and arguing for or against the amount of community benefits that it does already provide? You know, there's been no indication. We, we typically don't hear a lot from the administration when we talk about this. It seems like they're very content with how things are going. And in fact, actually, there's a pilot action group, which is essentially the biggest sort of like advocacy group around this issue that tries to push, for example, for institutions to pay in full or to reform the program. And they recently requested another meeting with Harvard and essentially said they gave us the cold shoulder. Like Harvard sent an email back and sort of said, like, here's a list of all the community benefits we already provide. And also we met five years ago. Thank you so much for reaching out. From all indications, it seems like Harvard is pretty content. And it's also worth noting, because this is a voluntary program, I think there is some hesitancy on the city's end to push which may contribute with their like contentment. There was references to this in a hearing in April. You had city officials kind of reference, because this is a voluntary program, we don't want to like overstep. And this is discussed by other people familiar with it too. Essentially, they're already doing you a favor by agreeing to the program. There's nothing forcing them to do that. So you don't want to push them f- too far and tick them off. And anyhow, Harvard is such an important institution in the city of Boston that they do want to do everything they can to make sure it's a really positive relationship. So, so far, you haven't seen any dramatic calls from city councilors or city officials, including Mayor Wu, to really hold Harvard accountable. Or, because honestly, there's a lot of other institutions that also are not paying the full amount, although there certainly are others who do. So you mentioned that there are currently calls to reform the pilot program. What have those calls for reform said, and how are those taking shape? So it's been about 10 years now since this program was implemented, and Boston is actually sort of referred to as a pioneer or a leader in this type of program as a model for other cities. And now, and this totally does exist in other cities around the country now, too. We have New York City, New Haven with Yale, plenty of others. So Boston has served as a model, but now it's been 10 years. And so I think some of the activist groups who really pay attention to it are in our concern that large institutions are paying their fair share, are saying it's time to like take a second look and update it based on what we know now, what we've learned after 10 years. The first thing first is, more than anything, the evaluations that they're using are outdated. They don't actually reflect the value of Harvard's land now. It's been 10 years. Second of all, they're saying the community should be more involved in what constitutes a community benefit. Because effectively now, the universities release reports that say, like, these are all the good things we do for the community. And if they meet this very broad definition by the city, then they're checked off. But some residents are basically saying, actually, they should consult us and ask us, if you're in our neighborhood, what does the neighborhood need? And have it be more of a conversation so that communities have more of an active voice in determining a community benefit. The last thing they're looking for is essentially a new pilot commission because this entire program started over 10 years ago under Mayor Menino when he started a commission that issued a very detailed report on the value of the land and and, and how large institutions could contribute to the city's budget and that sort of thing. So they're essentially asking for a second one of that. So for folks who are looking to pay attention to the pilot program and Harvard's ongoing yearly payments to the city and Boston, What is there to watch out for in the way of next steps? 
Yeah, so essentially now both activists and I guess myself as a reporter on this issue are looking to city officials. The ball is a little bit in their court now because I think concerned residents have sort of made their state clear. You know, universities are where they are. You know, the pilot action group met with Northeastern and their administration essentially says, we take direction from the city. If they tell us to do something different, sure, we'll do it. Nominally, it is popular with the city council and with Mayor Wu. That was part of her, Mayor Wu's campaign platform. Councilors have been really positive and talked about it really well in initiating change. But nothing has just materialized yet. And this is honestly one of the complaints of the action group, essentially saying, like, we're not even at the starting line to reworking this program, much less the finish line. Thank you so much, Jack, to join us to talk through the pilot program and Harvard's involvement within it. Thank you. News Talk is hosted by Frank S. Joe. This episode of News Talk was produced by Melanie Sanchez, Gina H. Cho, Vivian Rong, and Frank S. Joe. Our multimedia chairs are Joey Huang and Julian J. Giordano. Our managing editor is Brandon L. Kingdollar. Our president is Kara J. Chang. Music in this episode comes from freesound.org. From 14 Plimpton Street, this is News Talk.